Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Brad Barrett. Brad Barrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I can see from your um, your the big motto that you've got on the back there, make your money matter. How did it start that you got involved in the world of finance? There's probably lots of things you could have done, but you got drawn into that. What, what was the beginning of that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've had this discussion a lot over, I guess, two decades now as an advisor. And um, I think like many of us, when we get into our fields of, of purpose, um, it was something cathartic that happened in my life. Um, when I was 16 years old, my dad worked for a company uh, for nearly 20 years at that point, um, and it went bankrupt. You know, like thousands of other people uh, in that company at that time, it was actually the largest corporate bankruptcy uh, right behind Enron. It was pretty wild. Um, and uh, it was MCI WorldCom was the company he worked for. And I don't know if you guys know corporate history. That was oh, a, yeah. a yeah, big yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Those, those companies that were heavily recommended by Merrill Lynch. So I was working for them at the time. Uh, exactly. So analysts were all over these for many, many years. And obviously there's vast differences between the two because obviously at 16 years old, I became a, a student of the game to realize, you know, how could this happen kind of thing. So I went, man, I, guys, I went knee deep in that whole thing. That's a whole other subject matter for us. But you know, really, it was the CEO of WorldCom at the time just decided to pump the numbers, you know, out of greed or whatever else. And he's sitting in a jail cell somewhere and rightfully so. But uh, my dad and thousands of others, you know, we lost a job and I was 16 years old. I have two younger sisters and my dad was in telecommunications. My mom was a teacher. Uh, my grandfather, my, most of my grandparents were military. So no one had a financial, you know, background per se. And I don't know, guys, I just basically said, I, I want to learn everything I possibly could about money. And um Right then and there, I feel like God touched my heart and said, that's what I want you to do for your life. And so to this day, gents, I went into a local bank and I'm not sure what I said, but I became a teller there at 16 years old, a sophomore in high school. And um, that was the start of my financial services career. And when I got into college, um, I worked with a broker dealer, an independent broker dealer out here. And uh, I started my practice, if you will, of actually going from financial servicing to financial advising. And uh, we're sitting here 20 years later, and I've been fortunate to be able to hook up with some great people here at One Capital Management about 13 years ago. Uh, you know, there's I have four partners um, that really started uh, the firm here, and I came in as kind of the fifth, and we have others now. And it's been uh, it's been a fun ride. You know, our core ethos is really you know simple and elegant in terms of private wealth management, which you know is to us different than quote unquote financial advising because we want to really provide value to the client on on everything from the advanced planning concept of things to the investment management, um, as well as the relationship management. So it's much more relational to us than um, than transactional. So that's probably the Reader's Digest version of 20 years of, of background, but um, that's kind of how I got to here. One of the things that's become a, a very popular theme on our pod over the last couple of years has been the the role or, or lack thereof of the educational system in um, people's awareness of finance. I mean, we can Paul and I can speak for the complete lack of any any content relating to investment at the, yeah. the, in the British school system. But I mean, how, how does it work? If if any different in the states? Same. I mean, it's one thing we talk about the fi- what what's really cool. I think you guys can agree, and this is probably worldwide, but I know for sure here in the states, there's been this um, this financial literacy in the past probably 10, 15, 20 years, maybe 
that we're starting to see this financial freedom concept come around, you know, so it's not this plug in, plug out kind of environment. So it's more about financial education, financial literacy. Um, the actual education system here, it, it, same thing. I mean, it's not like we're, we're teaching, you know, our, our high school students about to go into college, you know, what a mortgage is or, or how to manage credit or debt. Well, All just, just, the, that, just the importance of something like compound interest. Yeah, or exactly. I mean, let alone investing of just understanding time value of money, exactly to your mm -hmm. point, right? I mean, I've always shared, and I used to, my mom was a teacher, right? So I used to um, I used to go into her class. She talked second grade and fourth grade, so primary education here. And I used to go and do simple stuff, right? Like, what's a dollar? You know, what does a bank do? Like, you know, fun stuff to kind of get get the idea of money. And by the way, this is should be something I speak about often here on, on my show and in our in our with our clients is, I think also what happens with the lack of education around money is also the identity that gets wrapped up in money. You know, um, we become this hustle environment where money becomes a part of who we are when the reality is it should be a tool to use to better who we should be or who we are. And so I think the lack of education also plays on us psychologically. So I like to get in there early, you know, with my mom's students at the time and just kind of talk to them about, look, this is a tool. It's an amazing one. The more you know about it, the better. Uh, time is your best friend. I mean, all investments, I think you guys would agree, right? Compound interest, time value of money, rule of 72, all the stuff that we can, we can talk about, right? It's all about buying time. And the more we can educate on that, the better. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think in the States here, and I think worldwide, we're, we're seeing this kind of movement, if you will, to, to go towards financial literacy and financial education. I really hope it becomes more of a primary subject matter in, in our schools for sure. So you, you said the rule of 72. I'm, I'm not sure what that is, to be honest. What What is that? Oh, yeah. So um, it's kind of a standard practice, kind of rule 72. And, and we kind of learned it early on in, in, um, in money theory. Uh, take any interest rate uh, that you would earn, divide it by 72, and it'll tell you how um, how long it will take for your money to double. So oh, as an example, right. if you can do a 9% rate of return divided by 72, it'll take eight years for your money to double, right? Um and it, it plays on the, the concept of compound interest, right? Because it's also working on averages. You, you know, you don't want to put in 10% because it basically earn 10% every year and it'll take 7.2 years uh, for your money to double. So it's just kind of a rule of thumb to kind of look at it. It's a, it's kind of a good little dangle to kind of talk with someone right on the heels of compound interest about, you know, you, you stay disciplined and, and, you know, you pick the right investments and you just, you be discerning about those investments. Um, you know, you're able to to really grow some wealth for yourself. So before we get into the topic of how you pick the right investment, because that's obviously make it that's like saying making the right decisions, which is there are many ways you can make wrong decisions. So how how does one know until afterwards? Um, yeah, what, there was a big jump from when you first discovered that you you wanted to get into and find out about how this company that the MCI Worldcom had actually gone down and then deciding to take control of your money. I'm guessing you're a very analytical person because you wouldn't have wanted to do that unless you, you wanted to get to the nuts and bolts of what was going on and strip everything down and work out how things work. Um, yeah. which is something that many people in the financial markets shy away from. Cause unless you do that, you won't really understand what's going on. How did that step go from from that initial interest to you actually having a firm with partners and what you've created today yeah you know it, it like i said remember i was a teenager at this time right and all of us have been there before you know i'm 16 i'm you know we like to think we know the world at 16 <laughs> but we also know we don't especially looking back right 
Um, and I think I just really, when I say I looked into it, I remember this was like right around the internet. I mean, this wasn't, you know, it wasn't like why we didn't have social media. So it was just reading articles and trying to understand things. Here's what it boiled down to for me was, and this is from my father who I look up to and he's, and by the way, I mean, I, I never share that story simply for empathy or anything like that, but to, to share with everybody that, you know, I'm in the seat uh, that most people fear, right? When I talk with clients, their one fear, like we all have of investing or money management is losing money. Right. And that's what launched me into this. Cause my family, we, we did, we went through that. And to me, it was planning. That's what it came down to for me. It was, it was the lack of advice my father might've been getting about diversification, which I know is a very boring and overused terminology, but it matters. It comes down to the simple concept of all your eggs in one basket. I mean, my dad was, you know, he was a smart guy and he made a good salary. And like, by the way, this is, he's one of many, right? Um, you know, he, he made a good salary, but he was a company man, right? And he was putting all of his vested options as it became, went from LDDS to MCI to MCI Worldcom as the company was growing and being acquired, right? He was getting shares, invested interests, and so on and so forth, you know, and that's where it comes down to, you know, this concept of making sure you have diversification, understanding and speaking with an advisor to say, hey, I have a lot of my net worth in this one area, should I or do I need to diversify myself out to protect myself? Um, so I learned that concept through my research, if you will, during that time period of like living through it. And and that's when it kind of dawned. I mean, remember, I'm 16 years old. I, it wasn't like I was like, pro, you know, proficient in this, but I was learning the, the, the mature concept that, you know, I wanted to make sure I, I had diversification within my own life, right? Um, this is true, not just of money, but just as life in general, right? Um, and so that's where I kind of built the the idea of getting into financial services to learn about money. And then from there, it just expanded into um, wanting to be on the financial advising side, the actual relational working with clients, helping them structure uh, their planning, helping them structure their investments and and providing that diversification. And that's where that's where the the purpose for me was born, was in that research, realizing that it ultimately came down to, and, I, and there's a lot of people to blame in that whole situation. I mean, there's corruptness for sure uh, within these companies that were doing these, these crazy, stupid things, quite frankly. You know, but at the end of the day, we also have to be mindful of ourselves too and say, okay, well, we need to, to, to plan and, and to be diversified. And so that to me launched the whole wanting to be a financial advisor and really wanting to help people um, with that very simple subject matter that I think a lot of people just look over right? Because everything's going well and it, it will go well to a point. And so you need to make sure that we also peel back and understand that being diversified doesn't mean being necessarily conservative. It just means being proactive and being mindful of life's ups and downs. And I learned that at an early age and I carried that into my practice. And when I say my practice, that's when I went into the financial advising world, working with an independent broker dealer, um, actually, which is funny, my dad's advisor, my dad's current financial advisor at that time had offered me an internship. And I started working there through, through college, through university. And so I'd worked there on, on holiday breaks, on summer breaks. And then after college, got a full-time job there and worked there for a couple of years. And through that process, met uh, Pat Bowen, who's the president of One Capital Management, at that time through that process. And after a year of discussing with them, it, it made sense for me to move from that broker dealer um, and to join with One Capital Management. And at that time we were at around half a billion dollars in assets under management. Um, today, currently we're standing about 5 billion. And at that time we had about seven core employees, you know, and I was one of them. Um, 
And we're now at almost 85. So it's been quite a ride uh, to be able to provide value and do all the things that we, we as a mission statement, we as a company are doing for finan- being financial advisors and private wealth managers uh, for our clients. I've got a question in relation to the individual risk and, and return appetite. Do you yeah. think that the, the fundamentally, all things equal, that the advice for um, an average guy in the street who's maybe just starting out in his career and just starting to save, is is that going to be the, similar to someone who's already independ- independently wealthy or was, was already wealthy before the relationship began? There's, is there a di- should there you mean be working with an advisor? Yeah, is there a difference between let's say advising advising the wealthy versus advising average average investors? That's a good question. You know, my first answer would be no because we have to peel back for a second, right? If I have two people that I meet with, let's say today I meet with someone at 10 a.m. and one person at 1 p.m. The person at 10 a.m. has got a lot of zeros behind their names, you know, to your point, and the one person at 1 p.m. has less zeros. Let's just say. Our discovery process for us here at One Capital Management, which is all I can really speak to, is understanding who they are as a person related to their money. So that has really nothing to do with the zeros or the net worth. It has to, we strip down, try to figure out what their relationship with money is. And through that process, and by the way, when I say that, the qualitative aspects here, not the quantitative, right? Is things like their interests, their hobbies, their values, their relationships, things like that, that either got them to where they are right now. Um, which to some might say, okay, the person at my 10 a.m. example was successful. Okay, well, that doesn't mean the person at 1 p.m. wasn't successful. They might have different values, interests, hobbies, and so on and so forth. So our job is to make sure we meet them. Here's what we say at One Capital. We want to meet you where you are and understand where you've been because that helps us, you know, to understand where you're going to go. And, you know, what I found to more directly to your question, Tim, which is a good one is, the risk appetite has been, by and large, the risk profile, if you will, has probably been a little bit more aggressive on the ones with bigger zeros. But again, there's some there's some differences there, right? Did they inherit that? Was there was there funding, yeah. you know, prior from family or things like that going on, um, or was it just the person who's built a, a real estate empire or or businesses or multiple businesses sold certain things? So there's a lot of differences in that camp. But I think if you just broke it down into my 20 years of experience in the financial services industry and working with a lot of clients and doing a lot of first meetings, if you will, or what we call discovery meetings, I would say the risk appetite, the risk profile is probably a little bit more aggressive on the person with more zeros simply because, you know, as we all know, high risk, high reward. So there's some yeah. things out there that there's some adages, if you will, that are there for a reason. And I, we see it firsthand often, but I don't know if it's like a complete, you know, I don't think you, can, you can state. Yeah, I don't think you can state. You know, sort of concrete things because obviously people are different. The, the reason I ask yeah. is that, funnily enough, earlier today I was meeting a client and uh, I cited the example. We were talking about risk, and uh, we we're talking about risk. And the mm-hmm. the example I cited was the hypothetical example of someone who'd worked their whole life at Lehman, and then September '08 happens, and they don't have a yeah. job, and they don't have any life savings because their equity's gone as well. Now that we would say is risk, whereas the sort of day-to-day, you know, blips of a portfolio value going up and going down—that's just that's just noise by comparison. So I think a lot of people m- mistake they they don't nail the the attributes of risk correctly because they assume it's just volatility and it's a little bit subtler than that. The other reason I asked yeah. the question, the other reason I asked the question is that from a personal perspective, there's a book I came across 
about 98, 99 called Against the Gods by Peter Bernstein. And at the time, I, so I just made the transition at Merrill Lynch from the fixed income world, the bond world, to private client. And in that book, I came across a quote from a guy called Daniel Bernoulli, which I probably use in just about every client meeting since then. And it's basically, Bernoulli was a like Renaissance guy from like the, whatever it was, 17th or 18th century. But he, he made the point that his, his perspective was, if you're managing money for wealthy people, quote, the practical utility of any gain in portfolio value inversely relates to the size of the portfolio, unquote. Or in plainer English, if you're managing money for wealthy people, just don't lose it because they've already got the money to begin with, which is why I ask about whether there's a distinction between the wealthy and, the, let's say, the, the aspiring wealthy, because what one is trying to grow wealth and the other is just trying to retain it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I think we, we hear as money managers as well as, you know, professional advisors, right? Again, the risk profile might might vary, but y- you're right. I mean, I think those who have grown it, well, it's the whole concept too, right? Of um, they, the, the higher you go, the higher you have to fall kind of thing. So I think their their risk parameters become a little bit more about safety. But I don't know, I, having this conversation real quickly, I, I just kind of flip that back and say, you know, I've met a lot of people in, in that regard too. And again, we both, we've all been in these client situations where people, individuals are different. But sometimes I feel like the ones that have attained that, they're looking for security with us for the long money management of their portfolio, but they're still relatively aggressive and still like these returns, you know, that they want to seek because they've been seeing that in their businesses or whatever net worth they've achieved. So it's kind of this 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 marker of, you know, the, the big tree fall hard kind of thing. They're worried about that, right? So that they don't, don't have that fall. And I think the people that are still growing, um, yeah, I think there, there's definitely something you said about that. That's a great quote. No doubt. The, uh, the thing I'd, I'd, I'd just inject also is that in terms of anybody looking for a career in investment or investment advisory or wealth management or any of these topics is, mm-hmm. it, I mean, I read English at university and I don't regret it at all because I think it, you, you learn a lot about human nature in a, in a, in a, in a literary uh, capacity. But yeah. if I had my time again, knowing that I was going to go into the markets, I'd probably have read psychology. You know what? Loud and clear, same thing. I mean, I got my undergrad in economics, and I, I think there was a lot of macro and micro theory there. But I've realized yeah, but most now, of it, looking, most of it's unfortunately is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Here and there, yeah. I mean, a lot of it. I mean, you can look at trends and you can look at different things like that. But the reality is, the consumer sentiment, as we know, as indicators, right? Especially one of the six indicators of recessions and all different things. How we react or don't react to things has a lot to do with psychology. Hundred percent agree. You know, I remember. I remember my senior year uh, of my undergrad, there was a, a professor that came in and, and, and was, was kind of was going through some different things. And, and I, I'll never forget what he said. There was a, there was like, a, and I, there's a theory behind it. I blanking on what the term was, but it's like, we, as humans, we remember the $1 loss more than the $10 gain. And that kind of set off this whole thing for me. Where the it's loss like, always hurts more. The loss is always. Yeah. Hurt more. And, and during volatile markets, as we all know, with clients, we tend to get really myopic. Right. We tend to focus on right now and we don't we don't open up our 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 windshield, if you will, and realize that a lot of these things and these black swan events that happen, you know, they're 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 there, but they happen every year in just different different ways. You know, not to say we need to not listen to them, but a lot of it is noise. You know, I always say to clients, my big saying is, you know, it's not the water around a boat that sinks the ship, it's the water that gets in. And so filtering that psychologically, the rational mind, the logical mind with your emotions. Um, has a lot to do with it. And I think to the conversation we had earlier, and now Tim, I think it's a great point you just made. It's like, 
now more than ever with this financial literacy, this financial freedom, this whole DIY movement has also come around, right? This do-it-yourself environment. And again, I've shared this many, many times on our show with our clients, just on our broadcast, if you will, that as professional money managers and, and financial advisors and private wealth managers, I'm fine with it if you can re- if you can remove the emotions, which to your point, Tim, is psychology, right? If you're a robot and you can say and look me in the whites of your eyes that you wouldn't react in March of 2020, you know, or or any part of 2018 or summer of 2015, or I mean, we can go back or March further, or March right? to March 2009, March 2009. I mean, oh one during the tech bubble. I mean, we could name all these different events that have happened. And I share this about me, like I, and I don't be like, for me, I tell people, my wife, my Veronica and I, our, our assets are managed by the same portfolio manager here at one capital as my clients. Some of my clients are kind of taken back by that. Cause they're like, well, don't you know what you're doing? I'm like, well, same reason why a surgeon wouldn't do surgery on himself, right? A, it's physically probably impossible. But for us, I also know I'm a human and I'm going to tell my clients, like, I'm still a human being out there with emotions and behavioral traits of my own psyche that I don't even know subliminally are there, subconsciously are there. So having that, you know, unbiased and objective view, I I will go to my grave saying this. I feel like that is so much value there that sometimes can't even be quantified. um, That is so real. And it's just important for people, people to know about. I mean, find that person you can build trust in and like, but, and I think you guys would agree, Tim, with your, your practice sounds like, I mean, you, there's something there and the psychology has a lot to do with how we perceive money. Yeah. Sorry, Tim, I left you. I thought you were going to answer on that. No, I was, I was, I was, I was going to effortlessly gently segue into trend following. Yeah. Okay. But I thought that's maybe, maybe it's an area that you'd like to, 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 to come in on. Well, what I was, what I was thinking as you, you were speaking um, about, yeah. First of all, if I could circle back a little bit towards what you were saying about how you deal with clients, mm-hmm. my thought the thought that popped into my head then was how you deal with clients, and I don't, right? So it's, you guys are the experts with regard to what you have to do. I would have thought depends quite a lot on the market environment that you see before you. So if you've got a very volatile market environment, what clients' expe- expectations are going to be extremely different to when you've had a five-year, 10-year bull market, and then the expectation is that they want you to continue in that vein. Um, Would you say that is correct? And I I think that's it'd be interesting to hear both of you, your views on that. Um, And that plays into the behavioral finance, which I totally agree to him, then plays into what technical analysis is. And one of the reasons why I was quite excited to speak to, to Brad today was because you've uh, listed as a important topic, behavioral finance. And I think that's, once you've understood the nuts and bolts of the markets, that's where I think people differentiate their interests. They show real deep understanding once they get to grips with behavioral finance. So, so starting with Brad, what would you say about that in terms of the market environment to what clients expect? You know, and Tim, I actually, that's a great question, Paul. I'm, I'm interested having the conversation with you too. I've noticed in 20 years in financial services, 15 years with advising clients is that psychologically, I feel like most of my clients shift within their own environment. So to your point, Paul, which is like, let's say you have a five, seven, 10 year bull run, right? They're expecting certain rates of return. And yes, I think then when you go into volatility, 
that's when I was mentioning they go myopic because they realize what they earned yesterday and they're not understanding that these things go up and down. Like if it only went linearly up, right, you wouldn't need an advisor. You wouldn't need investments. You just rode the wave up, right? And so I think what I've noticed is that they 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 understand like logically. So again, getting into the, the behavioral finance side of this, they understand like when I'm talking with them, they understand logically that we're in a volatile market. But their subconscious or whatever you want to call it is saying, but I still want the returns and I don't want to lose any money because of what I saw the past five years. Not realizing that if you've earned eight, nine, 10% on average, I'm making this up hypothetically, over that bull run on average every year. And now after one year of volatility, their net total time-weighted return is around five. They didn't, they lost money, but they gave back profits. And Mm -hmm. understanding that difference for them has a lot to do with how they look at their current investments. I mean, to most of my clients and to most people out there as investors, I think you go through a volatile market, one trading day can seem like a very long day. And, and it's almost hard to see tomorrow. And so that's where it's it's good to kind of have this objective view where you kind of open up and say, okay, let's look at the grand scheme of things here and say, I think what we do during volatile times, like what we do right now has a lot to do with ourself and our future self a year from now and so on and so forth. I mean, you look at studies, historical data, whatever you want to call it, there's roughly uh, right around for every six or so good years, there's about one bad year. If you look at just history and bull markets, bear markets, and I may be moving that around a little bit. You might have more details on that one. But I always say this, what you do in that one year sets the tone for the six. And so it's interesting, right? It's like, why would you think this this minor part, this lower percentage part of a, of a bigger thing has a lot more to do with it? Because that's what sets yourself up for the next six or the next seven. And people understand that. I, I feel like I get through to them on that, but then they'll go into their day and then that's where their subconscious kicks back up and says, no, 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 fear, fear, fear. And I've also noticed that, you know, look, the brain is designed to protect us, not enhance our life. And some of the books I've been reading and some of the, like, I don't know if you guys read this book, Psychology of Money. It's one of my favorite books. This Morgan Haslam. Yeah. What a great yeah, it's book. It's a terrific right? book. Such a terrific book. And there was a lot of concepts in there that you understand. And I kind of did some some digging just my own research. And again, Google can be its own thing, but it's amazing how the brain's set up, right? It really is designed to protect us. It's not really designed to enhance our life, right? It's logical, it's rational, it creates grooves and ways with different frontals and back cortexes speaking to us in different reasons. Um, and it's really what's what what keeps us in track, but it also says if we've gone through something previously. It, it it tells us what we want to be doing going forward. So it's like, if, if we went through a volatile market this year, it's kind of weirdly saying, you're going to see it next year and then the year after that and the year after that. And it's like, well, that may not be true. If you look at history, that just hasn't been the case. So longer would an answer, I think, Paul, to your, to your question. But um, I do feel like the concept people bring into a, a good year versus a bad year, they get wrapped up in what it was versus what it is. And I'm as an advisor, I'm always saying you got to not look at always what it is, but you got to look at what it will be. And so that's where the conversation comes around about diversification, management, staying in the course, discipline, discernment, all that stuff. There's a great quote that, that that sort of reinforces what you just said, which is I forget who made who made this one, but it was uh, most a lot of your money is made in bear markets. It just doesn't feel like it at the time. <laughs> I know, and I, you know, that's that's so true. And I I've been lately been saying this and. In bear markets, people look smart, but it's where bulls actually make money. You know, 
And so it's like when you when you are out there right now, a lot of people, and I don't know about you, Tim, if you're seeing this, but everyone out there is loving the, the fear-mongering, if you will, and and kind of sharing the this, that, and the other. I mean, we see it in politics, we see it in everywhere else. And I'm not saying that's not valid or true or real or anything else, but it's kind of opening up and kind of keeping out the noise, right? But a lot of money is made. What you do right now, what you're doing during volatile markets has a lot to do with how you're going to make money tomorrow in a bull market. I completely agree. Just to jump into the the here and now, is the uh is there a likelihood that is there a possibility that US may actually default? You know, I don't know about you, but I've I've been kind of going back to studying 2013, you know. Um I think I think there's always a likelihood, you know. I, I don't I don't I don't believe in the never say never. The, re- the reason I ask is because it feels more likely now than I can ever remember in my my career. Because the the yeah. situation of the US and and let's not pretend the UK is some kind of shining paragon of virtue when it comes to fiscal probity. Uh, right. Everyone's in the same boat here, and we're all sinking. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real possibility, and, and but I, I think it's how we're going to react through that. And I I've always said this too. It's like. What, what is it going to show us? Like, we can all learn from our mistakes, right? Let's just call it, just boil it down to human beings, like what we tell our kids, right? My, my big fear is if we do, are we going to learn from it? Simple things we tell our clients is live within your means, right? Don't spend yeah. over what you got. I mean, if every government followed that, we'd be in a much better situation. And I think we all can agree, right? If you lined up 10 economists, 10 advisors, 10 you know investment gurus, whatever you want to call it, and you say, give me a recipe for inflation and recession environment. It'd be close the entire world down and print money. We did that, yeah, did yeah, we not? Yeah. So it's kind of like we're, we're this this is coming to roost for us a little bit. And I think what we learn from this, same thing we're talking about, it's almost a good parallel between bears and bulls, right? We're talking about that a lot today. You know, it's like what we do during things like a government shutdown potentially or defaulting or whatever it might be, defaulting really in this case, um, you know, are we going to learn from it? Because that has a lot to do with our tomorrow selves. No different than a person investing in a bear market, not thinking ever a bull market's going to come back. Um, I think it's a possibility, but hopefully it's not, right? Hopefully they, they come to a deal here soon. How would you define what money actually is? And in some ways, that is a difficult question. Yeah, that is a difficult. I, I actually, I was looking at some of you guys' shows. I think a couple of weeks ago, you guys did, did a show with someone that was co- talking about the cost of money. I think if I'm not mistaken or something like that. And I didn't get to listen to all of it, but I wanted to listen to some more of it. I actually just did a show myself of kind of what we, how we look at money and the, and what we consider the cost of money. Um, you know, to me, defining way to define money, it's a, simply a tool. I mean, for all of us, it's a tool for whatever we want in our life, right? Whether it's for freedom, whether it's for things, uh, you know, whatever it is, it, it shouldn't become our identity, Right. Um, but, it, but it should have a big factor in our lives. I mean, sadly, and Tim, I don't know if you agree with this too, but I mean, it's like one of those things I talk about clients. It's one of the co- biggest causes for divorces and stress in marriages. It's the, one of the biggest stressors and anxiety ridden things for people in general. Um, it has a lot to do with our, our serotonin and our dopamine hits again, psychologically, when it comes to depression, anxiety, and things like that, money has a the reason I'm bringing this up was the cost of money has a lot to do with the weight of money. And how we would define weight, whether it's kind of that feeling like that monkey on our back kind of thing versus it actually, I made a joke the other day, it, was, it like weighs nothing if you think about it, right? So why would something that literally physically weighs nothing, it's way so heavy on our hearts, on our minds, on ourselves. And 
defining money, I think, has a lot to do with individualism, defining money for yourself. And I think a good advisor should bring that out of you, right? What have you come to the table with that you've seen in your life is money, right? Did it come from something that was like the, 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 the behavioral financial traits that we bring in really comes down to two things, right? It's like nurture nature. And actually, Morgan Housel talked about this a little bit, right? He was kind of going like, there's the God-given DNA, no difference in the color of our eyes. Then there's a circumstantial, right? The stuff we live through, the good and the bad. You know, how we view money is also how we'd all answer that question, Paul, which is a good one is, you know, how would you define money? What it means for you? And has a lot more to do with psychology and, and inner discussions within yourself than it does anything else. More so than growth, more so than all the other things that everyone loves to talk about. I mean, the reason why I, I asked... Don't. Oh, sorry. Go on, go on, Paul. I was just going to say, because of the introduction of cryptocurrencies in 2009 with Bitcoin and where we are now, uh, given that there's lots of different cryptocurrencies and, and altcoins, etc., uh, one of the main arguments that people have a, may have against it is that it's not real, that's not real money. But the problem that we also have at the moment is that the government, if they can just print money because of circumstances that they find themselves in and they can get the public perhaps behind doing it, maybe a war, maybe because they want to shut down the economy. Doesn't that beg the question as to what it ex what exactly is money? Because of a, a, a brilliant book um, that discusses the psychology of companies and money itself. Money doesn't really exist. It's actually a figment of our imagination. Um, but it, when it was tied to the dollar, sorry, when it was tied to gold um, mm. prior to the 70s, it had it had something. It, it was connected to a piece of metal, which was rare, mm. and actually had some value on its own. So money's disconnected now. It's float free floating. And it's whether it's going to be whether there's going to be some form of default, I suppose is inevitably built into the system, whether it's now, whether it's in five years or 10 years. At some point, we have to reach a, a an understanding where people just say, there, there's nothing, this isn't anything. This does not connect to anything. And we, we day to day, of course, we can continue in this kind of matrix type environment where we can, we all accept money and we all, know the value of it because of what we can buy but we also know that there's <clears throat> there's this thing looming in the background called inflation that's keeping governments inverted commas if you can use that word honest about what they are actually doing when it comes to money printing and and it's that 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 I don't know how deep the discussions you have with clients. I suppose this, it that's perhaps a little bit too deep to go down to what is money. Well no and Yes and no. Uh, I mean, I understand your, so the question now more on the physical, I was kind of going more the, the ethos of money and the psychology there, but I've always said, I mean, I think let's, let's have a conversation, right? Money in general is how we define money, right? It's a utility. It's, it's a bartering system. I mean, if we were talking on this podcast with the technology we have 2000 years ago, it'd be cattle, right? It was, it was what was accepted in the marketplace for goods and, and, and gold and gold and silver. What? Yeah, obviously commodities like that, gold and silver, oil, corn, coffee. I mean, things that were of value, right? That's how we all as humans define that in the quote-unquote marketplace. 
marketplaces now are a little more digital and you know obviously with with coins being becoming a, a form of currency outside of a you know my lame example of a cattle or a bartering system it's kind of defining that and i think over time if you look at it and and i, I share with clients that it, it's interesting we've obviously evolved and so i think for all of us it I, I think it'd be remiss for us all to just say we're never going to evolve out of the dollar or a coin base or something like that into something more digital. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've shared with people that, you know, I think evolution is a part of human nature. So it might be something that we're going to see. Obviously, I love the idea. Uh, I share with clients this. We don't invest in cryptocurrency here as a firm. Um, we understand it's an asset class. We don't have it in our clients' portfolios. We share that with them. Um, because it, can't, it, it, isn't, it isn't yet a store of value. It's far too volatile for that. Hundred percent. And interestingly enough, like the the libertarian in me loves the idea of of a no central bank theory, right? The the idea that supply and demand is encapsulated in this. There's only so many to go around, kind of thing. I, I like that. But obviously, too, we have all seen it's one of the number one places for nefarious activity still, and there's still just a bunch of things going on there. And then, to your point, Paul and Tim, like being widely accepted, because I think that's a real definition of quote unquote money is it being widely accepted, whatever it is, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I I love hearing how people define money and, and then how, whilst you appreciate the libertarian aspect of, say, cryptocurrencies, it doesn't fit in with your investment portfolio uh, beliefs. And uh, without speaking with Tim, I think right. that's a similar, you have a similar view. Is that, is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the the thing I think I, I, I really enjoy about this, uh, this sort of little side, avenue that we've, we've gone down is people i think people sometimes forget just how insubstantial and intangible our financial system is the mm-hmm. the guy i was going to mention is i'm not sure if we ever had him on the pod but there's a, a friend of mine a guy called guy fraser sampson who's written multiple books on the topic of finance and other things but specifically in this case finance and he points out that if if finance world if, if basically if humanity and finance world were extinguished overnight. Now the world would still turn, that would still have nature, but all of the things that we attribute value to would just disappear. So everything that we, the composition of, let's say, an investment portfolio, by and large, unless it's literally in like real estate or or tangible commodities, it would just disappear. And I think it was Satyajit Das that, that described money, digital money, which is obviously the money that we now effectively use day to day as the abstraction of an abstraction. <laughs> so this is, we are so far removed from yeah. what used to be physical currency. It's unbelievable. It's amazing that people, people stand for it, frankly. Yeah. No, I mean, I think hearing that, first off, brilliantly said, I mean, hearing that it's kind of like, again, I, I just have to go back to the psychology when I talk with clients and Tim, I'm sure you, the same thing when you're going, if, if, if that were the, the case, which I totally agree with him just digesting here then the store of value that we all have around what it is that we define money with if that was all removed right that's why i tell clients too if the, the real to me the real salt of a human has a lot to do with if you lost everything would yeah. you still have things that you value would you still have integrity would you still have you know land that you would call yourself without a bank helping you with that would you know things like that that come into play and so i think it leads a lot of people sometimes into realizing like we have to kind of take into empowerment ourselves and to control our, our own situation, you know, and because, you know, we're going down this path. It's like it really totally could uh, be pulled out the rug 
so to speak, could be pulled out from under us on, on certain things, being that we are so digital and we are creating a, a or using a currency that technically is an abstract of an abstract. I, I love that. I mean, one of the reasons I ask about the default is because it seems to me that the risk of, let's call it some form of monetary reset, is so much higher now than it ever has been in our lifetimes. And as an investment manager, it, it's, it seems clear to us that there are things that probably one should want to own, but equally clearly, if not more clearly, there are things that we absolutely shouldn't want to own. And one of those things probably now is, dare I say, government debt, because it's just so vulnerable. Long-term government debt or short-term? Well, well, government debt per se, mm. just to the extent that it's not just in the context of the uh, the potential default, but it's in the context of, you know, when there have been prior experiences in throughout the world of countries that have basically abandoned their existing currency system and started on something else, that's often been tantamount to a, like a nearly 100% wipeout for people who had their savings in the original currency. And that's, I think, a lot of people's fear about, you know, this idea potentially of a central central bank, digital currency kind Correct. of thing. 100%, 100%. You know, and that's, I totally agree with you because, and I've always said this, and I've never actually looked this up, and I'm going to say it here, and maybe we can all do some research on it afterwards, but I don't know of a, it's a little off topic, but it's the same thing to do with it. I don't know of, a, of an ecosystem or a society that's ever gone from one currency to another and then back to the original or mm. back to whatever it was before. It's, it's only ever been gold. So we always keep, we've, we've kept being dragged back to gold in some form, but never any other fiat. No, no, no other fiat. And gold, right, as we know, it was always a, it was backed against an asset, but it wasn't like we we're going and going to Costco and taking a gold bullion and buying a case of water kind of thing, right? So it's kind of what the gold is related to and 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 how it's stored. Um, yeah, I mean, physically, we can see that how gold became the store of value, but it was the paper that was more convenient. So pa paper money was just yeah. a technology. It was just a way of yeah. being able to say, look, I've got this gold in this bank, and here's a note to say that now this gold is your gold. Um I mean, it was so, an ease of use, right? Yeah, it had, exactly. Had a practicality to it. <laughs> exactly. So, so going, we we could go back to some form of gold standard, although many people debate whether we should or or can. But we could, given that there could be gold that backs our, uh, our digital money, and we could then effectively take that to the bank or send it to the bank, and they could send us the, the gold. But they're never going to do that. Um, well, and the problem with that is, if you look at stats right now, I mean. Basically, in in at least for I can speak for the United States in particular, the greenback, what actually constitutes a greenback in a coin is less than 10%. The other 90% of currency floating around is debt and basically fictitious. You know? Yeah. Well, it's like um, what JP Morgan said, which is gold is money and everything else is credit. Exactly. And so you think about that, it's like one of those conversations where it's like that's where you I mean, I get into so many conversations with clients around the use of debt, the use of um, you know obviously with inflation kind of using arbitrage to to better your situation because it, it's right or wrong in 71 when we got rid of the the gold standard i mean this was the new game if you will this was the new arena we had to play in you I know mean, it's um, a, it's such an interesting area of money that nobody really talks about and it and the thing is it doesn't matter <laughs> until it does and when it does it's yeah. all that matters well and there's and tim i think it was to your point earlier too right the government debt conversation. We we know that as the risk-free rate, right? And it kind of redefines that in a way. 
you know, it, and even our tender says that backed by the full faith of the U.S. government, at least on our side, right? And it's it's the lack of faith that may be there and the understanding that if we do default, what is it, you know, does that statement change, right? I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with this stat because we've used it dozens of times now, it seems, and certainly we, we talk about it with clients all the time. I had, had a, a conversation on it earlier today. There is a 50-year inflation-linked UK government bond. We call them gilts and the BUS treasuries. And you'd call them TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected yeah. Securities. There's a 50-year index-linked, inflation-linked gilt here in the UK. Last year, between January and September, that bond contrived to lose 85% of its value. Wow. Wow is the appropriate answer. And this is what pension funds in the UK will be chock full of. Yeah. So that's one reason why Liz Trust got, got thrown out the window. Yeah. So when it comes to... When it comes to actual um, in, investment style and analyzing the markets, there's people who are more technical, like me. There's people who are more fundamental, like Tim. And but Tim was alluding to trend following, which is where he sees the value in in technical analysis as part of uh, the the value that it can give you when you take the emotion out of the market. What was attractive to you about different forms of market analysis? What were you drawn to? And is that different to what One Capital does? No, actually, that was one of the core ethos that we both shared. Uh, that's why I wanted to join was, and I think Tim, we fall into your camp definitely is 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 the fundamental side. Um, I've always been one to look under the hood and see how things work and looking at, yeah, just ratios that made sense to us that was less, less you know, technical. Um, situations and more fundamental. That was really a big, a big piece of our of our um, investment strategy as a whole. Both me personally and here at our firm, and we have um, my partner Steve Cowley, who's our chief investment officer. We have a deputy CIO and a whole team here in house, which is unique for uh, for in our world here, uh, being a registered you know independent advisor and RIA, um, a, a decent size one. But most of the times, smaller advisors will you know, for lack of a better term, outsource their actual money management. We have it all in-house. And a part of that is our investment committees. It's all fundamentally driven, um, looking at the fundamentals of a company, of a sector, of an industry, and making sure that we put that into a good diversified model. Um, and I tell people all the time, we're, we're the, you know, we're the long, the long only money managers, the boring people sometimes. Um, but it, 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 it plays out from our, you know, understanding of how we view monetary theory and, you know, modern portfolio theory in particular, and just bringing all those concepts into fundamental investing for our clients. And that was both me, Brad Barrett, as an individual, as an advisor, as well as a, as a firm here at One Capital. So would you say, so it's value then? And from, value. from yep. what I've learned from Tim about value, value can mean different things to different people. So yeah. what does, if if I may ask, I may not understand the answer as well as Tim does, but what sort of value do you look for? Um, so great question. And Sam, I'd be curious your, your input on this too. I mean, I, that's a great, I don't know if I've ever been asked that directly in this specific vein, the sense of value to us. When you, when you define a value company, you're kind of looking for a larger established company, right? We, we know this kind of, you can Google this, this is not hard, right? But a dividend paying kind of things like that, that's more, more of a value play versus a growth play. I mean, you always compare it to growth, right? So a growth would be a grower still investing back in the company, likely no dividends, so on and so forth. Typically a smaller company, middle-sized company, uh, maybe even a micro environment where it's startups or things like that. 
Um, but when we're looking for value, we are looking across the board, not just for specifically value companies that would like be in that box. And so I'd answer that question simply to say we're, we're looking for value um, that drives as much as seeks alpha as best as we can, you know, seeking returns. So having some some good allocated numbers or allocated percentages to some growers that we see value in while also backstopping some other things in that environment or that sector or that industry with, say, a value play, uh, for example. Um, and, you know, you, there's a lot of ways we structure that uh, in terms of, you know, our investment management, depending on the allocation for the client. Um, but to me, we're seeking value both not just staying in the value camp, but finding value in the growth companies in different sectors and industries that might not be of value, um, but we're mixing them together and making sure that they work uh, for, again, the growth or the protection of the client and their assets. So am I right in saying that if your client wants to take more risk, then you would tailor the portfolio towards more growth stocks, which... And if they're very risk averse, they would be pure value where perhaps they would be, the companies would be not necessarily growing much, but throwing off a lot of cash and very stable. We might get more simple than that and say, instead of being staying just in the equity markets, we would actually probably notch the, notch the bracket up on percentages of what's going to overall equities versus fixed income. Um, So that's kind of how we would, we would look at that, frankly. It'd be a little bit more um, of a concept around allocation, fixed income versus equities. Now, in the equity pie, right, it would get a little bit more um, diversified, but it wouldn't be that we would necessarily go more growth versus value. It would just be more equities within our same diversification within the equity model. Um, If we were to go more conservative, more risk-adverse clients, we'd add a little more fixed income into it, probably different types of fixed income uh, laddering, obviously, with individual bonds, ETFs, things like that. Uh, so that's kind of how we would do it on a shift there, Paul. How does that differ, Tim, to what to what you do? I guess, I mean, we, we uh, I would imagine, Brad's, perhaps uh, the word constrained springs to mind. Anybody that's working for a regulated company has to be mindful of what the regulator permits so we we need to sort of pay pay due homage to the in, in our case it's the fca um but our own experience is that the regulator is actually more accommodating than some firms some firms sometimes believe so we i wouldn't say we go out on a limb but we 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 have some let's say we, we have quite a lot of our portfolios are quite focused in terms of what they invest in and in some cases, we don't own bonds at all, which would be probably anathema to, to many RIAs in in, in, Amer- in North America. Yeah, for us, same thing. I mean, our, our governing body, the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, I mean, when I'm talking about allocation, we, with all of our clients, have what's called an investment policy statement. So we lay out very clearly after we build a plan for them, understand what their goals are with their money, we'll lay out an allocation in the IPS for our clients. Um and we have all of our rebalancing, all of our restructuring within there for the discretion, as we call it, right, to manage the assets based on that IPS, based on that allocation that the advisor and the client have you know, agreed upon, right, with some variance, right? There's always got to be some variance for a given time period. I think our variance is right around 5% plus or minus. And any sort of allocation change, so Paul, to your question, if a client was more risk adverse, but then something's changed or they want to get more aggressive, we would then go back to the table with an IPS changing the allocation, and that shift would not only start from the top end of just the allocation of where the assets are, but then that's when then we would go into the actual portfolio management of increasing maybe the equity exposure versus the fixed income, not necessarily just uh, the growth 
uh, to value within the equity markets. The, the problem I would I would put in the in, in the court of the financial media is that they spend so much time basically arguing about the merits of individual companies and virtually no time talking about what's much more important, which is asset allocation. I hundred thousand percent agree, man. You are like something I've been preaching on for years. It's, it's amazing. By the way, this is also where our clients get it from, right? They'll talk about a single company, and it's I've always shared. In fact, I just did a show on this last week. It's own. It's having the right investments in the wrong accounts. I mean, it's amazing how we talk about a stock or a company. To your point, Tim, without understanding how does that fits into the overall allocation of your goals with your money, you know. And I have. I, th- I think that I think the reason this happens is because it's so easy to come up with a narrative for a company and and a, and a story that everyone can sort of you know, you know the sort of uh, roll their sleeves up and get stuck into. Whereas. Asset yeah. allocation as a as a topic is kind of a dry is kind of a dry thing, but uh, yeah, I think that's the no, there's nothing why. sexy about it, right? But having some CEO on CNBC or something like that, you know, from a company that you likely have either used, right, <laughs> or 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 know about from branding, it has a better story. So if the market goes down from here, as some people are saying, I think it looks pretty bullish. But let's put that to one side. If the market goes down. Are you looking for opportunities to buy or would you be standing aside? Does the market have to fall a certain amount before you get excited about value opportunities? How how are you viewing the market right now? It's a great question. Obviously, it's one that is important to talk about given what we've seen over the past 15, 18 months. I I think the first thing I want to answer as a firm at One Capital Management, we don't necessarily put stop losses or trails on anything to uh, to a set amount of when it would go down that would trigger either a sell on one side or on the other side a buy um I like you I think have some of have, have more of an opinion personally as well as in our investment committee around some of the areas we're seeing with price to earnings pricing is where they're at fundamental discussions be, being had across the board obviously there's there's sectors and industries that are going to be affected but you know, I, I'm of the opinion right now we we have a little bit of a runway ahead of us. I don't know for how long that we might see a little bit of a you know we, we've kind of tested bottoms. I, I, obviously, there's theories out there with capital asset pricing models and things like that that say we're in definitely a range or we're trading at fair value on a CAPM model. But I mean, again, those are a little bit more technical and more benchmarks than they are fundamental views. Um, but I, I'll say this like philosophically. Uh, being that we're from LA, being I'm a West Coast guy, I uh, I do a lot of surfing. So I, I surf every week, um, lived in Hawaii for a couple of years. It's a big part of my life. And I bring that up for this reason. It doesn't matter whether you are a surfer or not. We know oceans, right? We know tides come in and come out, right? And I see a lot of guys, they'll go to these certain rocks, these certain points to jump off to, to get to certain waves, right? And I bring this up simply to say that when you jump off a rock to the water, to an ocean in particular, it's interesting because they wait for the tide to come up and then they think, oh, it's comfortable. So now I'm going to jump. But we know with tides, they go in and they go out. By the time that person jumps, the tide has come back in. Now they're jumping and landing on rocks. Where I tell people this as an analogy, at least here on the West Coast, you know, in, in the United States, is that we actually want to jump or we want to consider jumping when the tide is low. Because when we jump, by the time we actually hit the water, the tides come back up, gives us enough soft landing, and it rides us right back out. You know, and so that's an analogy I use a lot with my clients saying, look, you know, when things look as they might look, volatility, it's the time to check in with your advisor and it's the time to check in with, you know, your overall plan and look at your time frame, obviously look at your risk tolerance. 
But I think, guys, we can talk about this. We know this, that if you look back in history, money's made in bear markets. So whether or not we are all in agreement or across the world, if we lined up a bunch of people, said we are in a bear market, out coming out of a bear market, in a bull market. I mean, the reality is we've been in one. We've seen that. And um, I think it's a good opportunity ahead of us. I remember Tim was very excited, or I heard someone saying about Tim being very excited in 2008 that the market had gone down a lot and there were plenty of value opportunities. Is, is Am I remembering that right, Tim? Well, I'll claim, I'll claim whether or not there's any validity in truth, I'll claim, I'll claim it regardless. <laughs> no. History is written by the victors, so. Indeed. There you go. Indeed. Yes. So, so, well, it's always, it's always, you know, um, sweet and sour, right? I mean, you don't want to see that kind of a correction like we saw in 08, but at the same time, if you have the mindset, you can see opportunities. I always tell people like, you know, volatility can be a good friend to you if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. I, mean, I think the, the common thing that I'm getting from the, the dialogue we've had over the last week is that the single biggest, it's just confirmation of things that previous people have already observed. The mm-hmm. biggest threat and the biggest challenge facing every private investor is themselves. It's mm-hmm. psychology. It's, it's, it's not in the market. It's not maths. It's not analysis. It's simply human nature. I 100% agree. In fact, I was just reading the Dalbar report uh, that came out last uh, end of last year. Um, you know, for anyone who hasn't heard about those, it's like basically a quantitative study on behavioral traits and behavioral um, emotions and how they manage their money. And every year, you guys have you guys heard of this report? No, sounds fascinating. So it's called the Dalbar, D-A-L-B-A-R. It's amazing. It's literally called the Quantitative Investor Behavioral Diagnostic, and it's it's uh, it comes out every year. And I'm going to, I'm going to fudge these numbers a little bit because I don't have it right in front of me, but the consensus was this, it, it shows that if we just, you know, invested in the S and P 500, and by the way, many of us know these numbers, but if we just invested in the S and P 500 fully and 30 years ago and lost our password or just fell asleep for 30 years, on average, we would earn just over 10% per year over 30 years in that same time period, Tim, to your exact comment, which I completely agree with the average investor did about 3.6%. So we don't necessarily have a market problem. We have a human being problem, a behavioral, mental block, if you will, looking at the market. And ironically, in that same time period when they did inflation, inflation was trading at about 3.4 over that same 30-year period. By the way, that was still ending in 2022, given what we saw last year too. So like these investors barely beat inflation. Let's there, say, there I completely is, agree with you. There are some anecdotes that are even worse than that. The one I think that I I'm, I find most cautionary as a tale is that, that Fidelity's Magellan or Magellan Fund under Peter Lynch was the best performing mutual fund probably in American history. Mm-hmm. And yet the average investor in Magellan lost money. Isn't that crazy? They they tried to time it. So they they bought at the, the high and they sold at the low. La the rinse repeat. And it's like mm-hmm. if that if that if that analysis is correct, then it's it's like the line from Terminator Two. We're it's like we've we've had it as a species, haven't we? It's game over, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean we're, we we get in our own way. I mean, I tell most people all the time, say we'll be a great advisor to you if 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 we're allowed to have a two way street here. But at the end of the day, I can only do our job to keep you away from you. You know, it's from from your own emotions and from your own wanting to react. You know, I can't remember. I can't remember the name of the firm. It's an American firm. You may know it, um, Brad. But there's an American firm that their their client take on procedure is a little different, certainly from any anything I know here in the UK. Which is they'll they'll have the you know, prospect prospective client will come in and they'll have a little chit chat, and the firm will say, "Here's our process. 
Come back to us in a month and we'll test you on our process. And if you fail the exam, we're not going to take you on as a client. Now, that's an interesting way of using the client take on experience. But yeah. it, it, but it's, it's absolutely validated by if, you, if, if you're on the same page when you start, you'll probably have a happy relationship. But if you're not on the same page, this, this relationship is going to end in acrimony. Yeah. And, 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 you know, mind you, right, to that, to that saying and to that, you know, um, company's ethos and how they do their discovery meetings, you know, if we're on the same page, but it's also one of those things where it's like, it's a continual process. So let's say that client passes that test. And my, this is my opinion, hearing that for the first time, right? If that client passes that test, you and I both know in the advisory world with clients, we're evolving species, you know, whether through seasons and ages and stages of the client. I mean, things change. Um, fears come in that weren't there originally, so on and so forth. So it's like a continual process of, you know, in that study I mentioned, that goes back 30 years. That's a pretty, that's a long time period for most individuals, right? So imagine all the seasons and changes and things within 30 years, right? And so it's it's amazing that the 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 philosophy, if you will, and really ultimately the the two Ds I always call it here when I talk to our clients is discipline and discernment. You know, it's amazing what discipline can do. I know it's not the sexiest thing Recording to talk about. Recording in progress. You know, but it's it's but it's amazing how how important that can be. You know, relative to your money and the growth. And I I, I don't know about you guys, but I have in nearly two decades in the financial services industry, I have not seen anybody necessarily grow their wealth and protect their wealth by sitting on the sidelines. Just haven't seen it. I'm familiar with double Ds, but I think I use it in a slightly different context. Yeah, I know. I like to say the two Ds instead of X, otherwise the connotation gets mixed up. <laughs> so one of the amazing things about markets, I find, is that when you've been through enough cycles, you, you see things repeat. And I think that's why long-term investors and traders have that that kind of, oh, we've we've seen the show before. And we see a lot of things that have happened before, obviously happening again. And it's difficult to explain to someone who's experiencing it for the first time. It's a bit like when kids are growing up and they think they know everything. And then as life goes on, they realize actually the benefit of wisdom. There are reasons why you say to do certain things. And it's almost like you can't teach them unless they've actually experienced it. Um, You can't tell someone something. They have to learn it for themselves. Although some people accept knowledge uh, much more kind of openly and graciously. Um, but Well, that's a good point, Paul, too. But you think about it, right? That's that old saying, right? Knowledge is the facts and wisdom is what you do with those facts. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It has a lot to do with investing, no doubt. Yeah. Around 2000, I started to do some research into the possibility of AI and technology taking over. And I read, read Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, which reckon that around i think 2020 or 2030 i can't remember because i literally read it around 2000 was saying something about that could be when we get consciousness in computers and then they may take over now i still think we're well away from that even though ai is a big buzzword um they they are far from intelligent they they may appear to be intelligent and they may be doing things that we can't do but computers have been doing things that we can't do for a very long time um, yeah. what, what's your opinion on AI and whether the market will actually change? And, and that's a question for Tim as well, because as, a, as v, you're both looking at value investing, could the game change? Could there be a different way of in, investing? Well, I mean, right now, given the fact that we're talking in a certain week when we just saw what happened with NVIDIA, you know, just 
point point blank saying it. I mean, the the general short answer, in my opinion, would be yeah. I mean, it, it's it's gonna whether it's through consumer sentiment and just you know hoopla going around at this point, you know, it'll it'll change some things. But I think under the hood and the in the fundamentals, investors for long term value still comes down to you know what that company ultimately does with it. Um, how that affects other verticals within their businesses. And then obviously that spreads into the sector and industry and so on and so forth. Um, I, I will say, in my opinion, again, I, I'm a believer in the saying of never say never, you know, but you look at certain things and what it can do now, Paul, I agree with you that I, I think we give it, we're giving it more credit than it actually has. I mean, I've downloaded and I've used some things on like a chat GPT just to kind of test it and see what it does. And it's, it's to me, again, I'm, I am by no means a tech wizard. <laughs> I can promise you, I still use a yellow pad for my meeting notes, but I, I, I look at it to me and it's just a little bit more of an organized form of a Google search, you know, and to your point, Paul, computers have been doing what humans can't or won't for, for many years now. And so the evolution of, I think, you know, artificial intelligence as it relates to, we, we kind of have to see it play out. And I think being exposed to those areas, having exposure, if you will, diversifying yourself across different companies, sectors, industries, you know, asset classes in general, uh, to have exposure to those those kind of things is, is probably a, a wise decision. I know we as a firm have talked about it and we just basically, because our, our current diversification do have exposure to those, um, you know, and just obviously seeing how it plays out. Obviously that's the investment acumen form of what we would do with AI. I think there's a lot to be discussed on the social aspect of AI, uh, the spiritual aspect of AI, and just what that does for a culture is a whole other, you know, set of questions, I'm sure. But Tim, what what would you say? It was funny you mentioned Ray Kurzweil. So I can remember getting a, a Ray Kurzweil book again at the end of the, the 90s. And I think the one I, I got was The Singularity is Near where he's talking about sort of transhumanism and the, the melding of uh, human and, uh, and, and sort of robotic intelligence. And to which my, my, my better half facetiously referred to it as the, as the future is spoink. So she was certainly not a, not a, not a true believer. Um, in terms of the AI thing, I actually would revert back to something that probably Jesse Livermore said a hundred years ago, which is, you know, human nature doesn't change. So there'll be all these styles and, and iterations of, of thinking and process and strategy. But bluntly, and unless and until human nature changes, the market's still going to go through oscillations of greed and fear and bull and bear. And I don't see that ever really changing. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah, and I agree too. And I think it's um because the programming of these things even if you're leaving them because the it may be ai and sorry to cut in it may be ai and algorithm but it's still a human being that did the programming exactly that's the exact point it's what you're looking for so if you're not looking for what i find really fascinating about you value guys as opposed to what i do trend following and and um you know buying new highs just because the market's in, into a new high rather than worrying about value i'm not, not saying the merits of either i i, I completely understand that uh, you have to have your own methods but um the the uh the idea of of what value is and and the fact that it seems to me that it's such a, a off the beaten track way of looking at the market it's almost like anti-hype sort of sitting in the back coolly calmly assessing the market and watching sort of the short-term market run around like headless chickens trying to chase the latest hot thing. That's how I see it. And if you're going to 
program a computer, it's not, inverted commas, going to be very sexy to look for value as opposed to chasing the, the chasing something else. So in other words, I, I, I don't think it will affect the market for those reasons because no matter what, a bit like ChatGTP, as you've said, ChatGTP has biases because those biases are programmed into it. So, right. <laughs> so it's going to have market biases if you use it or if you use um, AI for trading because it'll have human biases in it and it goes back to it being exactly what a human is trying to do. The only other aspect of it that is fascinating is it can deal with much more data and it can look for patterns that humans wouldn't otherwise spot. Um, but I still don't think, I still think the market as a broad reflection of human psychology won't change. Because if it did, it would just be computers trading against computers. And that's not really a market. That's something else. I agree. And if if, if individuals or human beings, back to our original point, are involved, they're still going to have their behavioral, still going to have their emotions. The computer's not going to relieve them of that, right? Yes. Um, I actually mentioned last week or two weeks ago or something on our show, I saw somewhere, I don't know who it was, some, you know, typical influencer talking about money, probably has no business talking about it, has no experience, you know, hasn't really been in the trenches of being an advisor, kind of flippantly saying, you know, you know, you don't need an advisor, you can do it yourself. And I've always said like, look, the DIY thing is fine if you want to do that. But my opinion is if you're a human being, unless you're a robot, you're going to come up to these things at some point in your investing career or life. And have to make decisions that I think your logical, rational brain is going to be at odds with your emotional, you know, side of things. And it's just it, the robot, even if what do you want to call it, the AI might be there. But if it's client accounts, which means they have the right to deposit, withdraw, whatever they want to do with it, their accounts, right? The, the computers can trade against computers all day long. But if the client is fearful, just like they are in the normal world, like we see now, uh, they pull out, then that's that. And, you know. When you guys were talking about the value side, and Tim, I don't know if you th thought this as well, but it kind of struck me to maybe 10, 15 years ago when I was having conversations with clients when we're seeking value, when we were having conversations probably more so like five or 10 years ago, when you start looking at things, you have to value things differently, right? I mean, one of our largest automobile companies technically has no assets, Uber. Mm. You know, you look at one of the largest uh, marketing Airbnb advertising- has no real estate. Yeah, Amazon holds no... So you start looking at these very large value companies that we have to assess them differently because it's a different game. Facebook has no real assets. Amazon has no real assets. It's a conduit, but they're these large cap value companies. And so the same thing I would think goes in the future for us to assess you know, value plays with things like artificial intelligence or, or anything else. But I think it also depends what your objective is and not everyone has the same objective. So we touched mm -hmm. on this the last time we spoke which was, is there a different objective for, say, someone who's humongously wealthy versus someone who's just starting out in life and is is, is looking to amass uh, in sort of investment capital relatively quickly? And the the quote I, I always go back to is the, the quote from Bernoulli, which is basically wealthy people want to keep what they've got. They don't necessarily want to double it, but they sure as hell don't want to lose it. Mm -hmm. So, and the sort of regulator, at least here, and I suspect it's probably the same in the States, pays at least lip service to that principle by sort of insisting that if you've got like an age-based approach, then the asset allocation has to be has to be borne in mind. So in other words, if, you, if you're dealing with an 80-year-old, the yeah. asset composition of that portfolio is likely to be different from a 20-year-old. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, uh, we definitely have those kind of standards as well. I mean, just, 
just again, without the, without understanding the zeros behind a client's name, you look at the age-based scenario of allocation, you have to really bring into context risk, you know? Um, but I think then a good advisor, like you were saying, Tim, has to go further to that point and realize what kind of a client are we talking about here? Have they amassed a certain amount of wealth and now it's more purely about protection or is that 80 year old um, who has good health, for example, you know, living on and here in the state, social security, but has maybe a little bit more going out than coming in based on health needs, then we can't really be sitting in cash, although that might seem really conservative and a smart move or fixed income instruments for an 80 year old, because we have to keep pace with inflation and keep, you know, her style of living still up. So that's where the rubber meets the road there on, on understanding, you know, someone with wealth, maybe not wanting to lose it. I agree with that versus someone in the same age range, if you will, um, who still has a need for some growth simply because they need to keep pace with their lifestyle based on, you know, their income needs or overall outflow needs. But I suspect that the uh, as things stand right now, the typical advisor in, let's say, the Anglo-Saxon markets, i.e. the US and the UK, is probably looking out of it's probably looking at strategy out of the rearview mirror because we've been in a basically a low inflationary or disinflationary world for the last four decades plus. A lot of that mindset is baked into portfolio allocations now. Whereas I would argue, uh, and I think with some, I think, I think there is some so, something to to justify this. We're in a new paradigm now. We're in a rising interest rate environment. Inflation's back. You know, the the central banks have kind of lost control of the bond market. Uh, they've certainly lost control of the printing press. What will likely work in the next few years, I think, will be radically different from what's worked for the last 40 years. And that's a sort of 60 40 portfolio. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I know there's a lot of that, the rhetoric out there talking about the 60 40 model is dead. And I think a lot of it does pertain to the last 30, 40 years. I mean, what we've seen, in the, what's interesting about that same comment, though, what we've seen in the past 30, 40 years is six or seven recessions, 40 something plus rate hikes. We've seen multiple. 12, 13 plus, at least for the U.S. side, U.S. involved wars. Um, you know, we've seen, which is anomaly, right? We've seen two 50% stock market crashes. We haven't seen that. That was in the last 40 years. You know, and this is all kind of that same time period of when the last time, like to your point, Tim, we saw inflation, really. You know, in the, in here in the States, the Carter years, for example. It was the 70s, exactly. It was 40 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's exactly 40 years ago. I mean, a little bit more, right? So I'm just kind of saying, taking that, and then we extrapolate that out a little bit and say, okay, what else did we see in 40 years, right? That may or may not be different than the next 40 years. And then obviously, I agree with you, asset allocation over that time period has been such. And I don't know, I, I've done a lot of research and studies, and I, I'm not entirely convinced to this point that a balanced model still doesn't work going forward. I think the components of what you put in there and the value you're seeking within those areas um, matters a lot. I, I, you know, I think we all can agree with that. The, the, be the beauty forward. of the current system, I'd say now, is that um, there's so much choice, and that's a double-edged sword. So mm -hmm. there's never been more invested choice, but that, that that can be a good thing as well as a bad thing because it's like, it's like saying going to Vegas and you've got a thousand or a million opportunities to lose your money. <laughs> yeah. So it's like everything, everything is a tool and you make of it what you will. Yeah. And it's, I agree with you. It's like the, uh, the paralysis by analysis, you know, I, I think we see that a lot um, with investments and not really, you know, and then also the way I think investors in general are getting information is also way different than it's been over 40 years. Right. Um, podcasts from certain people like that. It's hard to understand who's speaking the right tone who has the experience. That's why I love podca podcasts like this. And like, I feel like what we're doing as well. That's why I really enjoy coming on your guys's 
show here is just like, I feel like with good experienced fiduciary here in our world, um, just credentialed advisors who are doing this daily, I want people to hear how we're thinking versus some 25 year old who's, you know, got a social media following <laughs> and talking about the, do this with your money and you'll be great. You know, and it's like Dog, Dogecoin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that all works so. until it doesn't. And that's the problem. It's, it's not the, um, they say yeah. anyone can make money in the market. It's just whether you keep it is, yeah, is the hard part. And, um, I mean, that's where the whole philosophy too, even back to the balanced model approach, the 60, 40, Tim, right. Is like the, um, you know, the dollar cost averaging environment, right. Which goes back to the psychology of continually investing, you know, um, spreading out your risk, buying at different you know prices. Obviously there's studies, you can map studies out left and right on those kind of things, but that's the same thing as, you know, it works till it doesn't. And then I, I guess my comment would be when it quote unquote, doesn't, what is you as an investor or anyone out there listening, right? What is your reaction to that? Is it stay the course? Is it, you know, seek some other value, but you're still being invested or is it to pull out? Is it to, you know, it, to go to the sidelines? And this is where the whole emotional game comes in with those studies we were mentioning and just, you know, how we see things as, as advisors. I think part of the problem with that is that there are times when a stock or a product is going into terminal decline and it's difficult to see the difference between something that goes into terminal decline and something that has just become extremely cheap. The value model is one way of looking at it, but there are many instances of major corporations, um, supposedly that have been producing a lot of cash or actually telling investors they are, and but actually that's not been the case, um, or just making really bad business decisions and eventually going to zero. And I mean, I'm thinking of Enron as I'm saying it, but there are, there yeah. are other examples. So the, the question is, the, the hard part of it is there are times, what the market will do is it will show you times when you should have just kept, kept buying. And you look back and say, well, if only I'd held my nerve when Amazon in 2001 dropped by yeah. 75% or 50% or whatever it was and, and bought more against something that was, say, let's buy it.com, which went to zero. And yeah. what's the difference between the two? And how, how do you differentiate between the two? How do you protect yourself? So I think that's why a 25 year old nobody naturally i mean i don't care what age nobody naturally can understand the market because it's not a natural place it doesn't work with the normal laws of physics and in order to understand it you have to study it and be really into studying it uh, otherwise it just isn't going to work i think so you can't accidentally be good at it it's not like just having a natural ability to play baseball or something like that you know you right. just might be gifted um it just doesn't work like that in the market. So you have to learn, it's a mental process and you have to learn when something is wrong and to to sense when something is wrong and to do something about it against sensing when or knowing when something's a great opportunity. And it isn't easy. It is, it is difficult. And there are times when, even with all that knowledge, people get it wrong. I totally agree. And it's funny when you were saying that, obviously I shared with you, you know, my story and, and when you say those kind of things to me, it's why I've always believed this, you know, because 
when you have companies that are like, for example, in the dramatic scenario, obviously this is a very low percentage out there, but the dramatic scenario where you do have actual corrupt companies or corrupt CEOs, I don't know that you can see that. I mean, those are just the anomalies of a market of a jungle that is just, you're going to have some bad apples, you know, cause I, I don't know what they were, but if you look back on Enron or WorldCom or Adelphia or any of those, you know, companies back in the day when they were doing all these bad things, you know, whatever their fundamentals were, if, if Tim and I were to go in as value guys and look at their price to earnings, their earnings per share and so on and so forth, I'm not sure what it would have shown us that would have said, hey, this company's, you know, going down because you can't see what they're doing until it comes to light. And then it just goes to hell in a handbasket versus say a company, you know, that has taken a massive haircut and you're studying everything you possibly can and realizing that it still might be a good buy based on maybe things like, you know, loan to value, whether de- how their debt is compared to their assets. I mean, if they were to fire sell through a bankruptcy, for example, because of legitimate bankruptcy reasons, because the business just wasn't working, for example, um, you know, the assets of the company can sell, would that pay for the, you know, the debt kind of stuff. And so there's just, I, you know, that one's a tough one. And I think you're right. It's like how, how people would react to it, you know, over time. Again, you can study it all, all you want, but there's going to be some anomalies that you're going to have to deal with, and you got to kind of move through it and move on, and, and keep with the overall discipline, whatever it is that fits into your, you know, financial plan and your overall strategy. So, would you be looking at the management? I mean, I know Tim, you do that. You, you, if I'm right in saying, you'd actually have a meeting or have. I think Buffett was saying how. He um, he has to understand what the business is before he invests in it. I think with Enron, the they were investing in things that, or they said that they were making. I think they invested in things that they've invented. Yeah, like weather <laughs> yeah, futures exactly. and so like and, yeah. So, it, it, yeah. I mean, but but to be fair, if if that was that was a thing, it you know how how could you tell whether it's a thing or not? It sounds wrong, but if it's a thing, it's a thing. There's amazing technology that comes out and we, we could say it's all nonsense but uh how do you how do you actually differentiate between is it is it just as simple as look i don't understand what they're investing in i'm not going to invest in it because buffett said that for a while yeah i know mean, that, that's that's buffett's zone of competence thing which I, I i completely agree with which is that if 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 there's something out there that's outside your circle of competence just don't don't bother because the chances are it's going to go horribly wrong at some point the, the, the on the value side of things, for us, it's relatively straightforward that we try and avoid value traps by simply not buying stuff where the the cash earnings, the visible distributable cash earnings, are in decline. Because the problem that so many companies ultimately get into a rut where the, the business is slowly failing, and it's apparent that's the case because they're not they're just not as profitable as they used to be. But as long as the bottom line's growing, then for us we're we're relatively sanguine about about the share price. It's when the share price is moving in one direction and the the corporate health is clearly moving in another direction, you have a problem. And the, the really bizarre thing is that, or the ironic thing is, you mentioned Amazon back in two thousand and one, but I suspect in two thousand and one, Amazon's top line was growing like a bloody train, whereas now. Uh, on a P of, I don't know, 198 or something ridiculous. Amazon's barely growing, if at all, and it's never been riskier. Yeah. So it's very easy to fall into these traps. Um, and I blame the financial media for that because these are the guys that give the oxygen to stories that may or may not be remotely true. Yeah, I, but I would also say that that is what is demanded. It's kind of a circular thing because it's what's demanded by the 
Well, that's, that's the argument. Like, if the if the if the ducks are quacking, then you know, then feed them. But I, 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 if it were down to me, the financial media would be held to a higher level of 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 uh, responsibility because you know, Brad, Brad and I work. We all work in an industry that's basically very highly regulated. Those regulate those regulatory you know constrictions do not apply to the media, and they should. Yeah, I no, couldn't I, agree more. If you're going to comment on in our world an SEC registered you know environment that we are regulated, which I I always agree with because I think it's good to make sure there's regulation in something like this. As long as it's a level playing gonna, field for everybody. Yeah, it's like you're going to have these people comment on these things and then a weekly I got to deal with a columnist who said something and, and a client's going to react to that person because they paid their subscribed newsletter or whatever it might be. It's like, now I'm combating something that may or may not be true. You know, now we have a whole hour-long conversation on something that was fluff, taken off of one out-of-context you know, piece of information on any said company. I agree. Yeah, what I, I meant was more more so the demand for twenty four hour news and to explain every zig and zag in the market every day, which is what these media companies do, because that's what people seem to demand. They want to know what's happening right now, and we know that that's not how the markets work. So. They're they're trying to put you, the tail you, on the donkey. You could you could make the same case that people want to drink. So why not have pubs that never close uh, or off licenses that never close? But uh, just as just as the intelligent drinker doesn't drink all the time, the intelligent investor doesn't sit their whole life in front of CNBC. Yeah, I mean it's it's not just CNBC. It is twenty four hour news in in all its forms. So it's a natural yeah, for sure. But it's then down to the investor to say, you know what, I don't need to be following this twenty four hours a day because the market isn't a casino. Although the media portray it as such, yeah, I don't. I, I need to switch off. So people need to be able to learn to switch off. One hundred percent. One. I mean, and that's with all news. We know, we know the best yeah, way. Yeah. The best way is to just do your own research and turn the news off completely. I, I most of the time I don't know what's going on in the markets. Like I. The debt ceiling was a problem. I didn't think it would be a problem. Um, actually, in between the two, the, the break that we did in this podcast, uh, it yeah. seems like there's some form of resolution. I, but I, I, I'm not sure if that's right. But the markets, from where I was sitting, didn't seem to to react in a negative way anyway. So I didn't think it would be an issue. But oh yeah, yeah. we gave back our our May simply because I think they're they're waiting for the. I mean, at the same time we're getting this debt ceiling passed, if you will. Um, it's headed up to the Senate where it's virtually, you know, um, as far as this morning, assume it's going to pass. You know, we're also waiting on jobs reports tomorrow Yeah, that came out last Friday. That was a huge, you know, what, you know, it, so there's, there's always there's, these things we know about that we know about called black swan, these black swan economic events. There's like studies that there's like 200 of them a year. It could be everywhere from a CEO has a mistress <laughs> to a debt ceiling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's all these things that can disrupt and, and interact and feeds the narrative on any 24-hour news cycle. And I, I, you know, the way Tim said it actually is kind of brilliant in the sense of, you know, the, the, the intelligent investor, someone who understands it or has the trust with an advisor who's doing it, doesn't need to be, you know, intaking every little bit of information. But it's interesting, right? I think something cathartic throughout a day, if you're, you know, just scrolling on your phone and you see something and it hits you at the right time, it'll prompt a, a, a nerve. That then, you know, so that's always going to be there. And they're doing it so much consistently that, that I think that plays the narrative, you know, and wherever you are, um, that it can, you know, sit in on you and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm actually am nervous about this. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't nervous about it yesterday, but now I am. And, you know, there's a lot of mental psych psychological discussions there and why that that pathway wasn't hit yesterday, but it is today. 
I think that lends to the whole notion of, you know, not reacting, overreacting, or frankly, underreacting uh, when it comes to your money and, you know, the overall strategy you're trying to go for with it. So can you both take temperature tests about the markets, given how many clients are are asking questions at certain times? Like if they're really quiet, you know, the market volatility is low and everything's going in the right direction. But then if you've suddenly got lots of questions coming in about what's going on, you know that you're in a different type of period. And can you use any of that as a timing tool? I, uh, I've been asked that before and, and it's interesting. And, and I, I, this is going to sound like I'm, I'm tooting our own horn here, but I think the way we've approached it and Tim, I'm sure it's probably likely the same. We've always approached money management through the lens of planning. And when we do that and we actually bring the client and I use this word appropriately here, enroll them in their plan, meaning they're involved in it. I've noticed that, of all the stuff we've been talking about, the noise that's in the world doesn't, doesn't get to them as much because we focused more on the overall plan and how the allocation of the strategy of the portfolio fits into that plan versus the other way around. So differently, it's the proverbial you know, t- uh, you know, tail wagging the dog, right? Instead of having the actual investment wag the whole thing, we're kind of turning around and say, look, let's structure the, the, in- the overall plan and fit the portfolio inside of there. Um, you know, that being said, when, a, when, a, with, with, then I would boil it down to the, the specific types of clients that we work with. Like for example, in our practice here at one capital, we have different niches of clientele. So we have a sports and entertainment chassis that only works on athletes. We have a family office that only works with higher net worth individuals. We have a first responder platform that works with, you know, firemen, policemen, um, and those, those respective areas have some camaraderie to them. Like take the athletes and take the uh, first responders, right? If I get a question and I'm working with, you know, let's say 70% of my practice is working with first responders, I'm likely to get a question inside there that has likely been talked about at the firehouse. Same with a locker room, right? Because they're more intimate and they're more together versus if we had a practice that was just kind of like broadly, broad stroked and you have different clients reacting to different things. So I've noticed it more because of just inner communication within a niche clientele within our firm. So if like something came up like the debt ceiling, for example, that might come up naturally simply because it's a, you know, it's a national news item versus maybe like a, a certain position that I might get asked two or three times. And I kind of know the source of where it came from because it's within a very tight circle, if you will. So I know that's kind of a longer winded answer to that, but um, that's kind of how I'd approach that, that question. Tim. I, I, I'm with Brad. The only thing I'd add is, is a, a quote from, because I, I haven't got enough cheesy quotes in yet, so I feel like <laughs> I need to inject a few before the show is over. It's a quote from Seneca. If a man knows not to which port he sails, no wind is favorable. <laughs> Very good. I like that. So on the subject of the psychology of money, what books have you read? Have you read Thinking Fast and Slow? That is very funny, Paul. A client and a good friend of mine just texted me a week ago that book. So, oh, really? Oh, wow. So I have not read it, but that is that is what I call a, a divine repetition. <laughs> and uh, that'll be my book I'm going to order today because that was just the second prompting I needed. Um, yeah. You, I was telling someone it. the other day, and I'm sure you guys have read this, but I think we talked about it actually as well. I'm actually on the third reiteration of reading Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. I just find that book absolutely fascinating. So 
And honestly, to me, it was one of the books I haven't been able to put down in a while. So like looking at another book right now has been kind of hard for me. So I'm literally on my third iteration of reading it just because I want to find more nuggets from it. It's just an amazing book. That's so interesting because talk, you know, we were talking about people being involved in the markets and AI and all that stuff. And I think in the end, it boils down to people doing what they love. Like how can a client obviously wants to make money, but they're never going to love the markets and finding investments and, and being involved with the day-to-day business as much as you guys are. And so therefore, that's why they're going to be the client and you're going to be managing money. When I was um, talking to people who were saying that they were interested in trading, the first thing I would say to them is, okay, this is a copy of Rem- Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Very often I'd give them a copy, just say, look, read that and tell me what you think. And if they were like, wow, this is brilliant, I'd say, okay, you know, maybe you'll be interested in markets. But if they they just saw it as some boring story, it's like, well, you, you're not going to be interested in markets. You're not interested. You're interested in the idea of markets, not markets themselves. And that's the big yeah. differentiation. And I think also, I mean, look, look at where you are in your career and you're still interested in reading more books about the markets. And I wonder that about, Myself, when, when do we get to the point where we say we've read everything? N- I mean, never, because that never happens. You're always trying to That's get That's one of better. the best things about this industry, in my opinion. I tell people this. I mean, I'm an absolute nerd for this. And I've been doing this half my life, over half my life now. And I'm not even close to running out of steam for it because it's one of those industries. And it works for a guy like me and likely you guys as well. This industry, unlike some others, it just, you'll never know everything. You just won't. and that's a really cool motivator to just continually learn the new things that are coming up almost daily at this point. And I just think that's fascinating. It's just something that seems overwhelming, but I think it's a really cool motivator. As Paul knows, one of my favorite analysts is a guy called Russell Napier here in the UK, who's a financial market historian. And uh, as Russell said, um, no other business really in the world pays you so well to learn on the job. <laughs> that's true. I, it reminds me of a quote I heard a long time ago from economists. Like our job, if you think about it, is to be less wrong more often. And we get paid handsomely to do so. And and it, and it's important because we tell clients this, that we, 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 we simply cannot understand or know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone a week from now, a year from now. Our job is to study what we know and and continually be students of the game. So if someone wants to retire right, which is, is a phrase that, that you've used how do they do that when when is ideal i mean obviously ideally the best time to start is as young as possible but if if they're like older people listening and thinking oh you know i haven't sorted my pension out i haven't got my money sorted out and is it too late what what can people do at early stages and at later stages to retire right I think subjectively, the answer I always give, and I even labeled entitled my book, Retire Right, that way, because and the, one of the first things I say is it's subjective. The retiring right, there is not a right way that fits every person. Operationally or pragmatically, I should say, into your question, which is a good one, is there's definitely some steps to do depending on the ages and stages that you are in or the seasons of life you are in. Obviously, if you are able to, the earlier you can invest and the earlier you can start uh, the planning environment or just in general, understanding the tools of money, meaning simple laws of living under what you're making, 
um, controlling your debt, limiting your debt, understanding arbitrage, if it does come to debt, understanding investments and discipline. The earlier you can do that, the better. Obviously, if you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s, I think the first, the very first step I'd highly recommend without even knowing anyone's situation is talk with an advisor. They'll be able to help and manage where you are at to make sure. I've actually noticed, and Tim, I don't know if you've seen this too in clients. I've actually noticed when someone comes in who is older, and by the way, older, I'm simply meaning like in their retirement years, 50s, 60s, maybe 70s, not necessarily elderly who've gone past the learning and yearning phases, that they'll come in mostly fearful and they were reluctant even to make that first step, which I, again, want to reiterate is to me, my opinion, the very first thing you should do is set a time with an advisor to walk you through this. But I've noticed that with, and I'm not pumping the tires, I'm literally providing their mirroring their information back to them just in a more of a financial plan arena that they're better off than they thought they were mentally coming in. And so I think that first step produces some fruit right out of the gate of contextualizing whatever the fear that they might've had coming into that discussion. So I know it's not a, not the sexiest answer in the world, but if you're older and maybe have missed the boat in your mind of getting in early or this, that, and the other, and there's so many reasons for that, by the way, there's nothing right or wrong, but that very first step is call somebody, call an advisor, seek counsel. That's so important to me. And um, within the book, if somebody wanted to make a first step, buying the book, what would they get from that? From the book? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I, I start out with the book with kind of my background, and I think relating from an advisor's point of view, I think the first thing, there's three things you want to look for, in my opinion, with an advisor. It's experience, credentials, and fiduciary. Obviously, those words are different used in different regions of the world. But um, I, I think starting with the experience and understanding why someone is being an advisor, because it's pretty simple to me. I've seen a lot of people out there that they're doing it simply for the paycheck. And I, to me, in any industry, I don't, really feel like they're ever going to have my, my best interest at heart. So I, I think from the book, what you'll find from me, how I wanted to write it was explaining my story and my why, because I've always said, when I ask a client, what's your why? Like, like, why are you investing money? Why are you growing money? It's amazing. The answers. I love asking that. That's one of my favorite discovery questions because of the answers we get back. It's so different. And for different reasons, it can be for caring for my wife, caring for my husband, caring for my kids, be able to give to charity. Uh, I just, I've had even the ones that say, I just want to get a lot of money, man. So I, I just love the different answers. And I, our job is to tailor that. And so through the book, what I wanted to explore is why I do what I do and why an advisor can be an important aspect to you. So the very first chapter talks about, you know, the whole financial planning process right after my story, if you will, and, and then kind of takes you on a journey from there into some of the more, I guess I would say, um, specific orientations as you look for through a plan, everything from, you know, investing to taxes to all of it. And um, hopefully that's from the book. What I wanted to come out from was was understanding that counsel or an advisor um, is a great advocate for you uh, in your financial journey. Great stuff. Tim, was, was there any questions you wanted to ask? No, the only thing I'd add in relate is, is something that I, I picked up when I was working with a, a colleague at Merrill Private Banking back in back in the, the early days, the, the first dot-com BIMS would be on 99, 2000. And I asked him why he thought clients would, would pay for advice. And his answer I thought was intriguing, which was they, they like to have someone to blame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and I actually, it's funny you say that. I'm pretty open with clients now in my stage of my career. I tell them, I say, look, any good advisor needs to have tough skin. 
you're you're paying for a service and there's value that needs to come from that. Our job together is to make sure that that value is appropriate for you. And so it's a two-way street. And um, yeah, I, I offloading some of that risk to someone and knowing you're paying for them, you know, it allows them to be in a position to, you know, take some heat sometimes when, you know, you're having a bad day or things aren't going exactly as planned, which, which by which the makes way, it, will happen. Which makes it part fund manager, part psychiatrist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know most of my clients think we're, uh, I, the other day I had a review meeting with a couple and they're like, yeah, you're kind of more of like our therapist than anything else. I was going to say, hey. actually, it's like when you go for a haircut, you end up just getting a therapy session. So I, I'd never thought of that in terms of your business. It's 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 virtually the same seat. I mean, my barber, I see every two weeks and I tell him he's got one of the best seats in the house and doing it forever. <laughs> and he gets to unbiasedly have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people. And I think us, one thing I love about the advisors, not necessarily the macro like investment world we were talking about. As an advisor, I'll end on this saying like, we're fortunate and I feel blessed to be in this seat to see so many different people, ways of life, family structures, industries, hobbies, careers, overall interests and values. It's it's just it's just amazing to see. It's kind of like as corny as it may sound in our boardroom, it's like seeing humankind daily in all different forms from different backgrounds. And it's a beautiful thing. And to be able to help them with something that's so important to so many in terms of money. I mean, I, I couldn't ask for a better um, purpose in life. That's brilliant. Um, so Brad, I'm not sure if we told you this and um, I'm sorry if we didn't, but usually at the end of the podcast, we like to share what we call media picks. What I'll yeah. give you a chance to think and ask Tim and then I'll come back to you. So um, Tim, what have you got for us? So I don't think I've yet mentioned this. I've mentioned it in person to about a zillion people over the last month, but I don't think I've mentioned it on the show yet. But either way, it's coming anyway. <laughs> it's a book called 180 Degrees, Unlearn the Lies You've Been Taught to Believe by a gentleman. It's not his real name, but his pseudonymous name is Fergus O'Connor Greenwood. And you can buy this book on Amazon or you can buy it direct from the author. It's 180 Degrees, Unlearn the Lies You've Been Taught to Believe if you take this book at face value, which I, I do, we have been lied to about just about everything. End of story, mic drop. <laughs> okay. Okay, bro. I actually just wrote that down, Tim. So thank you. I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I I would say this. I'll end on this. It's it's definitely not financial, but it has a lot to do with what we do. And I've actually given this book to a lot of clients to where I felt it appropriate. Um, it's a book called Purpose Driven Life. Um it's by a pastor actually um, named Rick Warren. And to me, I found that that book doesn't matter the the religion or it's not really about that so much as understanding that if you know your purpose in life and understanding what that means to you, I think a lot of things become a little bit easier that we as humans tend to make harder. Mm. And so I really like um, the focus of that book. The very first line in it is, is, is I love, it just says it's not about you. And I think as we all kind of live out in this world we have, um, I've always loved that, that process. And uh, it does go actually, Tim, interestingly enough, from a spiritual realm, it does go into a lot of the debunking of the things that we believe are true, which actually are factually incorrect. Um, so it kind of plays on that same book that you mentioned. It's so interesting within the financial markets, because we've been taught to analyze things in a different way, that we, we can see so there's, I mean, there's many, many people I know, for example, members of my own family who just accept everything that they see and don't question it and almost get annoyed when you question it and say things aren't like this. Just do your own research. 
for example, I mean, take 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 something like um, the financial markets at the end of two thousand and one. So we're looking at post nine eleven. Do you expect the market to be higher or lower following the nine eleven events? Um, and most people say no, lower. And of course, that's completely wrong because the market recovered and went up by the end of the year. The markets were falling all year, pretty much, and then hit a low when 9-11 happened. And then about a month later, hit a, hit a complete low and then went back up again. But because things don't make sense, they can't get their head around it. It's like, because this event has got to cause this to happen, they don't believe it. And I guess either you've got the sort of brain that allows you to take that information in and analyze it and accept it, or you just have this thing where you just believe everything you're told and you you take comfort in the things that seem to, inverted commas, make sense. I guess it depends on your your personality, but certainly people in the markets who are successful uh, or been there a long time don't take things at face value. I guess the thing is, in the, in the context of the financial markets, an easy, understandable narrative is a one-way ticket to the poorhouse. <laughs> now, where did you, is that a Tim Priceian or is that's that a, that's a that's a priceism that one? You right. can take that to the bank. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Yeah, great stuff. So, so mine's going to be a um, more light-hearted series that I that I saw, uh, which I thought was very good. It's called uh, Poker Face, and it's um, just a series of of 10 episodes that I found very entertaining, not market-related at all. I think there's a film with Russell Crowe called Poker Face. It's not that. And it's just really well-made, 10 uh, individual episodes of what I'm convinced has been um, influenced by Columbo. If you're old enough to know who Columbo is, then uh, it's a female lead character who is solving all these um, murders in each issue it, it, episode sorry um, but it's really well done really clever very entertaining there's an overarching arc of the whole series but it's it's uh, very simple it's not not loads of twists and turns which I really like actually I think we need to get back to that kind of very simple storytelling I think a yeah. lot of the films that are coming out now, they, they're just trying to be so clever with so many twists and turns and plot points and stuff like that. It gets, it can get a bit like you really have to pay attention and invest in what's going on. And sometimes you just want something simple. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Um, and and uh, so that's my pick. Now, Brad, I know you're busy. We're going to um, have to have you back on the show sometime because this has been too much fun. Um, I'd love to. Before you go, please... Give us your handles. Let people know where they can find you. And one final question. Are you writing any more books? <laughs> been asked that a couple of times. The, the answer to that right now is no. Uh, that took me long enough with my practice and my busy schedule. So I'm going to take a little couple of year hiatus. But I have some ideas on the horizon that I'd love to do in the next five or 10 years. That might be a little bit far off. But um, you can find me. Uh, uh, you can always uh, my our YouTube show is Make Your Money Matter. Uh, it's just type in you, uh, Make Your Money Matter with Brad Barrett. Um, we also have our website. You can go to at onecapital.com. You can find about all of our media, uh, podcasts, books, radio shows there as well, as well as more about our firm. But um, YouTube channel is probably the best place to go. You can find that there as well at uh, Make Your Money Matter with Brad Barrett. And guys, I. Uh, I echo that. Paul, I'd love to be back on. I love your guys' show. Um, and again, thanks for the time. 
You're very welcome. Do, do you use any social media handles, Twitter or anything? Sorry. Yeah. So on social media, um, from Facebook and Instagram is at Make Your Money Matter. Uh, so you can look us up there as well. Um, we'd be happy. Yeah. Give us a follow. Fantastic. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure, a lot of fun, and we look forward to you coming back. Likewise. Thank you. Thank Cheers, you. Brad. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.